Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we are grateful that you've given us this time to be together today. We're thankful for your word that gathers us and sustains us, that meets us in this moment. So we pray your blessing on this time of preaching. Enable us to hear your word that we might become more faithful doers of your word in all that we say and all that we do and all that we seek to accomplish in this life and for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On June 24th, 1877, in that issue, in that day's issue of the New York Times, it was reported that Mrs. Maggie Newton Van Cott was leading a week-long camp meeting on Long Island. Now, at that time, camp meetings, which were once uh, a, a, a part of, of which were several days of highly emotional worship services, they were one part revival, one part church approved vacation in Victorian America. Uh, these were a well established part of uh, America's religious landscape. Places like the New York Times would report when there was a camp meeting going on. And actually on Long Island, but also up into the Hudson Valley, there were thousands of people coming out for, uh, for these events that would take, play, take place each summer. And in the midst of that landscape, by the 1870s, one predominant figure was this woman, Maggie Newton, blazing a trail that none had, bla- none had traveled before. Born in March of 1830, Maggie was a native New Yorker. She was married at 17, and together she and her husband ran a successful pharmaceutical sales company who had their offices down in Lower Manhattan's financial district. And it was on her way to work one morning, making her daily commute, that something happened that changed Maggie's life forever, and we might say changed the trajectory of religious life in this country too. According to one of her biographers, this is how it played out. On the way to work one morning, Maggie suddenly heard a voice calling to her to turn her life over to the Lord. From heaven, light seemed to stretch upon her soul, and she was soundly and powerfully converted. Called by God during her daily commute, Maggie then entered a season of tremendous spiritual growth. She joined what was then the Duane Street Methodist Church. It's down in Tribeca today. And through fervent prayer and study and participation in the life of that church, she came to believe that God was calling her to be a preacher. And when she shared this belief with her preacher, with her pastor, however, he told her, that she must be mistaken. You see, in the middle of the 19th century, Methodists didn't believe that God ever called women to be preachers. Well, undaunted by her pastor's response, Maggie spoke to him words that shaped her future and that are some of my favorite words ever spoken in Methodist history. She looked at her pastor, I imagine her staring darts into his soul and saying, I believe my tongue is my own, and I will use it when I please, where I please, and as I please. Well, in 1866, 
Maggie delivered her first public address. Two years later, and with her gifts endorsed by several conversions among her listeners, she was empowered to lead prayer meetings. And finally, in 1869, Maggie became the first woman to be officially licensed or given permission to preach by the Methodist Church, a license that she would then employ for the next 45 years until she died in 1914. And when she died, friends remembered her as one who had the stature and bearing of a queen and a voice of strength and sweetness, such personal gifts to impress and control an audience, and her word has always been attended with excellency of power. In June 1877, a crowd gathered on Long Island for an event that would have been inconceivable, would have been impossible just 10 years earlier. A Methodist preacher, lead, the Methodist preacher leading their camp meeting was a woman. Now, I enjoy learning about and sharing chapters of Methodist history, and Maggie's story is one of my favorites to tell, and it seems incredibly appropriate to share it during this Women's History Month. But this morning... Her story also helps us to better appreciate another woman, another preacher, if you will, who was also included and empowered in the family of God. Long ago, in the Samaritan city of Sychar, a crowd gathered for an event that would have been inconceivable, impossible to them, actually just 10 hours earlier. The woman who had been married five times had met another man. But this time, she wasn't talking about marriage. She was talking about the Messiah. She said to the people, come and see the one who has told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? Now, her story began earlier in that day when she was running her errands, which included drawing water from the local well. It was a mundane but necessary task, probably a task that she did every day, at least once, if not more frequently. But arriving at the well that day around noon, she found something unexpected. She found Jesus waiting there by the water's edge. St. John tells the story of what happened next in a way that helps us understand some of the complex religious and social taboos that were at play beside the well that day. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone to buy food in the town. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it, sir, that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for something to drink? Because there were decades, centuries of division and animus between those two groups, between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that it's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Now that conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews went back, as I said, for centuries. And it was old and it was ugly, as ugly as conflicts often are when they come in to involve religion and race uh, and, and, and centuries of, uh, of rumor and innuendo and, and jokes about and just the way that, that people can, uh, who have so much in common 
confine the little things to divide themselves, divide their lives, convince themselves that this person who has so much in common with me is actually my sworn enemy. So when this Jewish man started talking about how little the woman knew about the gift of God, I wouldn't be surprised if that woman of Samaria gave Jesus a look that was somewhat similar to the one that Maggie must have given her pastor when he told her that women can't be preacher. And the woman said to him, sir, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water out of the well? This man who was going to cause her trouble and teach her something about God didn't even know the basics of drawing water from a well. Didn't even have enough good sense to bring with him a bucket to get something to drink. The woman from Samaria wasn't going to have any of that. I hear no small amount of sarcasm in her subsequent exchange with Jesus. Where do you get that living water, she said. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well, his sons and his flocks who drink from it? Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water is going to be thirsty again. But if you drink from the living water that I would give, you'd never be thirsty again. The woman said, well, then give me some of that water. I'd never be thirsty and I don't have to keep coming here every day to get more. Sir, if you know something that will save me the time and the energy of schlepping out here every day to fetch water and to run into the likes of you, I'm all ears. Let me know about it. At this point, Jesus proves to the woman that he though a stranger, knows something about her. He knows about her marriages. Now, the fact that this woman was married five times is often a a, a hot topic in any kind of commentary or essay written on this. Was she divorced that many times? Doesn't really say. Was she uh, widowed that many times? Doesn't really say in the text. But I want you to imagine for a moment, imagine that you've been through five divorces or imagine that you've been widowed five times. Really, just kind of drives home the fact this is a woman who's just been through a lot of life. There's a lot, a lot of stories she has to tell. She's been through some stuff. And whether it was divorce or being widowed, maybe it was a combination of some divorces, some uh, times being widowed, whatever it was, this is a woman who had been through a lot. And you can imagine that a woman who had been through a lot was probably used to people whispering as she came. Th- Do you know about her? That woman's been married five times. Can you believe she's been divorced three times? No. She, I, I heard she'd been widowed four times. Can you believe? What in the world has this woman done to deserve this? What did she do to offend God that her life has been so jacked up and so messed up? Maybe that's one of the reasons she has to come out to the water alone at noon in the midst of the day's heat. Whatever it is, whatever the circumstances were behind each of those meetings, I think we can infer from this story, this is a woman who is carrying the burden of a lot of life on her shoulders. And she finds some relief from that, some release from that in her banter, in her conversation with Jesus. So as he starts to reveal that he knows something her story too, the story continues. She recognizes that there's something deeper going on in this man at the well. He must be a prophet, she says to herself. And at that point, they engage in a conversation about what's the proper place to worship. You see, the the town that was just looming over their shoulder, the Samaritans believed that was the proper place to worship. Not Jerusalem. They had a temple there where they could worship. So she takes the opportunity in dealing in this conversation with this prophet to get his opinion on it. So which is it? Is it this city where my people worship that's the right place? 
Or is it where your people worship, down in Jerusalem? Is that the proper place? And Jesus takes that opportunity to press the conversation beyond notions of temple and places and worship services, but goes to something deeper, talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth and in ways that transcend the limitations of any temple precinct or any town, of any real, uh, 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 of any place into the deeper realms of, uh, of spirit and life lived before God. About that time, the disciples show up on the scene again, and the woman departs, makes her way back to town. And this time she starts to tell people not about the man that she's met that she's going to fall in love with and make number six. Instead, she tells about this encounter and about what he told her about herself. And she says, is this the prophet? Is this the Messiah? Can this be the one? And the scripture tells us that as she spoke about that encounter with Jesus, many Samaritans, people in that town, began to believe in him too. And it happened that they ultimately invited Jesus to stay with them for a while. Jesus, the Jewish man, came to the Samaritan city and stayed and shared news of God's love and God's presence in their lives. A barrier had come down. God was doing something new, something profound and powerful. Maggie Newton Van Cott and the Samaritan woman lived in separate worlds, yet they shared a common experience. They were included and empowered in the great story of God's loving presence by God's grace. Be it commuting to the family business or fetching water for the family's needs in the midst of their daily work, amid lives bordered by taboos and restrictions regarding what women could and should do, the truth that God did not respect those borders set them free to pursue a new future in God's kingdom. The two simply told the story about what Jesus had done for them. And in doing so, they delivered the message to their neighbors about the good and beautiful things God could do in their lives too. And the truth is, that's all that's ever asked of any of us. God invites us, invites you, invites me, to tell the story of our life with Jesus what we've done, the grace that we've experienced, the blessings we've received, the forgiveness that has set us free, the opportunities that we've seized to make a difference in the lives of others because of the difference God has made in our own lives. Whatever it might be, the story of our life with Jesus is what we're commissioned to tell so that others may meet him and come to know him as their loving savior too. It's the story about the one on which our hope is built. The story about the power of living water to wash over this world's barriers. The story of lives lived in spirit and in truth of God's welcoming and empowering love. That's Maggie's story. That's the Samaritan woman's story. That's the story for each one of us to claim as our own. And it remains always good news for you and for all of us, the good news for which we give thanks. Thanks be to God for this good news today. Amen and amen.